All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. As you're turning there, uh, let's uh, bow together in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we know, Lord, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is amongst us as the Word of God is being taught. So bring it to our minds, Lord. Make us good listeners. Help us to retain what we are receiving and practice the principles of Scripture in our daily life. Lord, transform us from the inside out. Make us what you want us to be. Change our minds. And Lord, let us live our life to your glory. And I pray, Lord, this morning, you would give us understanding on the things that are found in this text. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be looking at verse number 2 to 7 of Ephesians chapter 3 because I dealt with verse number 1 and verse number 13 already. And so Scripture has really been laying out for us, just by way of review, this grand, this grand position Christians have from God. They've been elected. They've been called to God's family. They're blood-bought children now. And so Scripture has begun to unveil for us the great mystery hidden in ages past, now being revealed to God's people which is, of course, Jews and Gentiles in one unified body. That's what he's dealing with here in Ephesians chapter 3. And he continues that theme from chapter 2 to chapter 3. And before he goes there uh, on to that theme, he dealt with something that we looked at last time. And what he dealt with was something that shepherds detect uh, amongst the sheep the possibility even of causing division in the body uh, and, of course, believers even to stumble in their faith. And, of course, the fact is uh, the, this particular subject does stir people up and, um, and if the sheep have been listening to and thinking about and grasping the grand position they have in Christ Jesus and even anticipating the spiritual riches of the Christian life, then this could be confusing to them. And it's found in verse number 1, and I already mentioned that. And What I'm talking about is when Paul says in verse number 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. And then down to verse 13, therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. So, I am talking about, and, and what Paul brings up here is that being a prisoner, suffering, and having tribulations is because of the gospel. So he asks the people, he asks those he's writing to, not to lose heart at his tribulations. He doesn't want them to be troubled or confused as Christians so often do, and some even start to doubt the power of the gospel and stumble around in their faith, trying to wrap their minds around the fact that God not only allows his people to suffer, but he ordains suffering for us. 
the reality that God's people will have tribulation in their life is clear in Scripture. Now, of course, to what level, to what extent that happens, that is up to the Lord. Now, the last time we were in Ephesians, I ended with the thought that faith tested by suffering is for the purpose of preparing you for glory. In fact, right in our text in verse number 13, it says, therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. So remember, I said in messages in the past months that God has inherent glory. That is glory that comes from inside of him, inside of his nature, outward. We don't have that kind of glory. We have reflected glory. We have glory that is reflected off of Christ onto us. It is glory that the Spirit of God allows us to reflect as He develops us and matures us into the image of Christ. So really what Paul wants to do with his disciples is he wants them to see the glory of God shining through his imprisonment and his sufferings that it may benefit the Ephesians and give glory to God. See, Paul is saying, look in my life. Look at what God has done with me. And so, look what he's doing with me in my imprisonment. Look, look at the chances I have to, to bring the gospel to even the guards uh, and to the ones that are coming in and out and talking with me. My ministry hasn't stopped because I'm in prison. In fact, this is the place God wants me to be right now. And so, therefore, I want you to see that, listen... I'm in prison, and I want you to see the glory. And of course, his glory is reflected in the kind of prisoner he is. He says it in verse number 1 of Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He didn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner that had committed a crime worthy of... uh, He wasn't there, of course, because he was an instigator in the sense of he preached the gospel and people got upset with him. But he's in there and he's looking at himself as a prisoner of Christ. I'm here because I'm a prisoner of Christ. And I'm glad I am. And so therefore, see, he is, he is not a prisoner because of something else. But he is a prisoner of Christ. And therefore, the glory is reflected off he, his understanding of what he is and what he's doing at the time. And then also, his glo- the glory is reflected in the, the changed direction of his life in Christ. In verse number one, he says this, uh, he says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for your, the sake of you Gentiles. Remember, Paul hated the Gentiles. He called them dogs. He had no regard for them at all. They were defiled people. And now he's in prison for their sake. So something's changed inside of him. His, the way he looks his pe- at people has changed. And so therefore he is a new man. He wants his people, he wants the people of Ephesians, he wants those looking at his life to see the glory of God in his changed life. Don't you want that too? Isn't that what people really see in you when you, you could say you're a Christian all the time, but really what they're looking at is how you've changed. What you're doing now that you didn't do before, how you view people uh, in a different light now than you, you used to view them before, before you used to be full of prejudices. And now you're looking at 
people not as red and yellow and black and white. You're looking at people as somebody who, who is in sin and under God's condemnation and they need Christ. They need the love of Christ. Don't they need that? See, see that God's changed your mind and that's, that's the glory of God reflected in what you're doing now, what you're saying now. Now some people respond to that glory in different ways, not always in a positive way. Uh, sometimes they respond to it in a very hostile way. In fact, Paul's in prison because the Roman government wasn't responding to the glory of God in a positive way. But nonetheless, God's using it. See, the glory is reflected also in what is not seen. As I mentioned last time, Paul brings up, see, we see the suffering, but we do not see the glory all the time. He says, you've got to look past the suffering to the glory. And we understand, of course, the visible present suffering uh, that we're in or that we may be in is always in light of the visible future glory of God. That's why Paul says, for the momentary light affliction producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And of course he says, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What are not seen? The glory is not always seen. Matter of fact, the full glory is not seen. But we will see it Partially we'll see it, and then we'll see God in his fullness. So it's also reflected, of course, in a changed character that suffering produces a, a character that nothing else can produce, where Paul says in Romans 5, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So in other words, that the glory is reflected in the increased faith in our life. The glory is reflected in the increased hope in our life. We, have, we are ceasing to be pessimistic in our view of life and we are we are increasing in our hope of eternal glory and that our life has a purpose. You are saved for a purpose that what God is doing in your life in this time of if history, he has something for you to do. There is no one in God's kingdom that is, uh, is shelved by God unless you shelve yourself. God wants to use you. So how was he able to point to them the glory shining through his imprisonment and sufferings. Well, I, I really gave you the result of the truth last time uh, because between verses 2 and 7, or actually verse 1 and 13, uh, he gives you the whole story on why he's able to point them past the suffering to the glory. Right? Because the only way he could tell the Ephesian believers not to lose heart, in verse 13, and to look past the suffering to the glory is if he himself looked to the glory of God's plan of salvation. That's what he talks about. That they and we should do the same in order not to lose heart. Not to give up. In other words, he's really saying in here, listen, have you considered... Do you consider every day of your life the great plan of God in saving sinners like you and I? Do you think about it? Do you think where God brought you and where you're at right now? Do you think what he saved you from? 
what he protected you some from, how you, your life, he kept you alive to hear the message of the gospel. Do you consider that that was no coincidence at all, that God's providential hand was involved with that? So, so, so what are you saying here? Listen. We, and what do I mean? Well, the glory of the extraordinary, God-given, salvific, salvific provision. If you just look at the suffering, you're going to lose heart. But if you look at the glory of the extraordinary, God-planned, God-given salvation that was provided on your behalf, then you'll have to rejoice and not lose heart. That's why every time you look at a passage of Scripture that talks about suffering, right in the context it talks about rejoicing. To me, that's like, that's an oxymoron. How could you suffer and rejoice? Right? But he's saying if you look at God's plan in giving salvation to you, you can't lose heart. See, that's where we ought to think about it. In fact, if you notice in chapter 3, verse number 4, this, we will be able, it says in verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So he is saying to us, listen, listen, learn, and put into practice the things that you are hearing. Right, because you have been given the ability to understand. So you see, this is, this is how we think rightly of suffering. We, we must look beyond it. However, we are not looking into the unknown. No, we are looking at God's wonderful plan, how the gospel came to us. That is, God the Father made the provision of salvation to us before the world began. This was already communicated in chapter Ephesians chapter 1, and in chapter 3, Christians are given the mechanics of how this grand plan of God was given to save sinners. Now, we're doing a book in our home groups called Expository Listening, right? That means you have a responsibility to listen in fact, if you look at this, what Scripture points out in verse number 2 of Ephesians 3, it says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. He is telling them something that they already heard. Don't you and I have to hear things more than once to get it? Matter of fact, you're going to find out today in your home group uh, that some of the questions that are presented to you, you're not going to be able to answer. So you already forgot. You already forgot things that I've mentioned three or four times already in preaching Ephesians, but you're going to say, well, I, I don't remember that. You know why? We need to hear it again. In fact, uh, a good teacher repeats himself. In fact, Scripture is repeating itself all the time. It's telling us things in different ways that we already heard before. But you know what? He's telling them something that they already heard is true, but maybe their listening was not so complete the first time. If they have a tendency to be disheartened 
at the apostles' present suffering, well, maybe they didn't hear all of it like they should have. All right, maybe they weren't getting the plan of God for them. They weren't looking at their life in light of the plan of God for them. And so therefore, they were being discouraged. Right? And if the apostle Paul is going to suffer, what about me? What's going to happen to me? See, that's where they were going. They were the ending right there. And Paul says, no, you can't, you can't do that. You can't think like that. You've got to think about God's whole plan. That God's been in charge of this thing from the beginning. And he's not letting go of any detail that's, that's going to secure and that has secured your salvation for, forever. In fact, he uses right here in verse number 2, if is a first class conditional if, and the bottom line is this, that um, he is saying that the Ephesians had heard. You heard me the first time. You, you got it. But you now hear, have to hear it again to get more of it to build on what you already heard. So what did they hear? Well, they they heard in verse number 3, or verse number 2, he says, they heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me, Paul says, for you. So they heard that God gave Paul special responsibilities on their behalf. In fact, he is saying here that God gave him administrative responsibilities to communicate the plan of God to the Gentiles so that they would be delivered from darkness unto light. In fact, he uses the word, in your Bibles, it could be translated stewardship. Some Bibles translate it uh, administrator. Some translate it steward, uh, dispensation. All those things could be used for this particular word. So what he is saying here. I was given a stewardship of God's plan of salvation. I was given it. Uh, it was given to me. And, and how did Paul think about that? Now, because you have to ask this question when, when you think about Paul. Why would the Lord give such an incredible administration of revealing God's plan to someone like him? Paul called himself the chief of sinners. In fact, if you look down at verse number 8 of chapter 3, he says, to me, the very least of all the saints. Now, you would have to say this, that maybe Paul didn't have such a high view of himself, that he had low self-esteem. I, I don't think that's it at all. I think Paul had a realistic view of his old past life. He understood where he was and where God brought him. In fact, just take your Bibles and turn back to Acts chapter 22. And let's look at verse 17 through uh, 21 for a minute, because Paul, when he gives his testimony, he usually gives in his testimony his horrendous past. In fact, I don't think Paul himself could fully believe that God would use him the way he was going to use him. Look what it says in Acts chapter 22, verse 17. It says, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. Verse 18. 
And I saw him saying to me, Make haste, get up out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Then in verse number 19, here's Paul. Look what he says. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And verse 20, and when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And then look what it says in verse 21. God doesn't respond to that. In verse 21, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So, in other words, you're seeing... In fact, you have to apply this to yourself, too. How can God use someone like Paul? Who was against the church, against Christ, hated Christ's disciples, and went ahead by action to beat them, put them in prison, and even had them killed and approved of it. How can God use him to be the administrator of the mysteries in Scripture? Well, there's only one answer. Only one answer. Matter of fact, it's the answer that you have to give and I have to give when we answered, why would God save you? The answer is this, God's grace. That's the answer, God's grace. In fact, if you look back at Ephesians, you'll find that's exactly what he says in verse number 2. He says in Ephesians 3, 2, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. And then verse number 8 of chapter 3, to me, the very least of saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So Paul is saying there, listen, it was only God's grace. That's the only answer I have for myself to be able to be given this great responsibility to preach to the Gentiles. And what does he preach to them? The unfathomable riches of Christ. Now he's in love with Christ. Now he's able to tell us about all the deep riches of Christ. Now he, he's able to bring the light that was hidden before. And so he brings the manifold wisdom of God's might uh, to people so it may be known through the church. That was the responsibility that gave Paul, that God gave Paul. So in other words, Paul is saying, if, if in my suffering, don't look there. Look at the great, grand plan of God in which I am now a part of, and now God's chosen me to do a great work among you. It's a very humbling work. And so he tells us in verse 3 to 7 how God did it. And notice in the first thing he did. Here's the manner in which the plan of God was given in verse number 3. He says, first thing he says there, it was given that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. See, in other words, Paul is saying this means that this was given to me uh, in Scripture. The, the mean, the source of the information that Paul received was from above. It was from God himself. It was not a product of human intellect. It was not a product of ingenuity. Humankind 
had not come up with it. Humankind could not come up with it. Matter of fact, the master plan of your salvation has come from God himself. And he's saying that you look there and you think about that for a minute, then your salvation is secure in Christ even when you go through trials and suffering. And like Peter said in his epistle, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, but uh, for no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In fact, in these few verses, verse 2 to 7, Paul uses seven passive verbs. You know what that means? That means... A passive verb reinforces the fact that nothing was discovered by human ingenuity or study, that this plan of God had no human fingerprints on it at all, or thoughts injected into it. That means that Paul was not the originator of the knowledge of the mystery. He was only the recipient of the knowledge of the mystery, just as we are the recipients of of what is already written, right? It's our job as believers is to read the Word of God and study the Word of God and understand the Word of God and do the Word of God. We're not getting more revelation from God. We have all the revelation. It's been given already. It's here, right here in our hands. And so he does it by giving revelation. He says, but by revelation there was made known to me. So Paul was made known, God's plan, and he once he was made known to Paul, Paul would give it out to someone else. The second thing is that we would be given the ability to understand the mystery. In verse number 4, it says, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Remember, chapter 1, verse number 18 and 19, he prayed that the Ephesians would have insight he prayed in verse number 18 and i pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe so he is saying listen remember god turns on the night vision for believers he allows you to read but he not only allows you to read he allows you to understand what you read And not only that, he allows you to see that what you're reading is not about someone over there. It's about you. It's about you. You're in the equation. God's plan considered you. When God gave Paul the revelation, he considered you. Because you know what? You're a Gentile. Most people here are Gentiles. Right? And so therefore, if it wasn't for this revelation, you wouldn't be here today. You know where you'd be? You'd be on a golf course, you'd be in a grocery store, you'd be in bed, you know, be fixing your car, you'd be doing something else that you want to do. But you're here this morning, and you're here to hear the Word of God. You're here to, to hear what God has to say to you. And one of the things He's saying to you is that God's children can perceive and understand the mysteries that God was and has given to His church. And we can't understand anything unless God, unless the Lord uncovered what is hidden in order for us to see it 
and comprehended. We cannot understand anything. Somebody who's not a believer can't read the Word of God and extrapolate from it an understanding. But their conclusions are wrong. They don't end in the right place, in the same place. And so a, a liberal theologian can take the Word of God and do some good uh, work on a, a text, but usually their conclusions are all off the map. When God's kids read it, they, they see that their conclusions are starting to line up with the rest of the Word of God. See, what is the revelation that Paul was given? What's the mystery here? Remember, the meaning of the mystery is the unveiling or disclosing of something that had been previously hidden. See, the unveiling here is the great secret of God that's now revealed to us. What is it? It was the love and the mercy and the grace of God were meant not for the Jews alone, but for all mankind, all tribes and nations we take the gospel to. Right? And so before the cross, remember, before the cross, Gentiles would have to become Jews if they wanted to be part of God's people. They had to be circumcised. They had to be baptized into the all kinds of rituals they had to go through to become part of that. And even then, when the temple is built, there's a court of the Gentiles. The, the Gentiles could only go so far. And they couldn't go all the way like the Jew could. And so, Scripture is really telling us here, listen, look at verse number 6. Here He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, he's saying, now the Gentiles do not become Jews, nor the Jews become Gentiles, but both become one person when they come to Christ in repentance of faith. That was a mystery before. That was not understood before. Even though you find God being kind to the Gentiles all over the Old Testament and accepting them who would come in the right way, they still didn't have full access. And even the Jew didn't have full access. They were restricted too by all the sacrifices and, and the sacrificial system and the, and the priesthood, and they could go only so far. See, it's Jesus Christ who makes all the difference. He becomes our sacrificial lamb. He becomes our substitute who dies in our place. He becomes the one who removes all the obstacles. He removes the priesthood. He removes the f sacrificial system. He removes all the regulations. And by grace and faith, come to me. All you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, that's who Jesus is. So, so see, that, that, that message is foreign to everybody who hears it. And it's especially foreign to the Jew. And to the Gentile, it's foreign because they'd never heard it before. It's brand spanking new to them. Why? Because most Gentiles involve, are involved with idolatry. The Ephesians were idolaters. They had Jewish exorcists there in Ephesus. They had uh, all kinds of perversions of sin in the city of, uh, of Ephesus. They had uh, the, the great goddess Diana was there worshipped in the in Asia Minor, and, and people came to Ephesus to worship pagan idols, and now these, these are Christians. 
And they know the truth now. They've been enlightened. They have understanding into the mystery of Christ. Christ being the deliverer, the Messiah, and they are now part of that. See, so we see in Scripture that in the manner in which God planned for salvation was by revelation and also by the ability to give understanding to the mystery. And then there is a third thing in verse 5 through 7, and that is the time and persons to whom the mysteries were to be disclosed. It says in verse number 5, it says, which of other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. In other words, God makes it happen at the right time. God didn't reveal the revelation at any time to anyone. It says here, this mystery was was not revealed before Paul's day. It was Paul which would be the one to give the mysteries of much of what God uh, has unveiled in uh, in the old, has kept veiled in the Old Testament now is unveiled. It says in verse five, which the other generations was not made known to the sons of men. It was not made known to them. It's made known to us. It's made known to the church. Also in verse number five, it says that it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit that God's disclosure of the knowledge and understanding of the mystery of God was only to chosen vessels. In other words, God not only makes it happen at the right time, that God actually chooses the vessels in which the message would come through. You understand that, right? See, in other words, it's not messed up at all by humanity. We haven't had anything to do with this. This is God's plan. See, if anything is going to give us encouragement during times of trials and sufferings, it's going to be when we understand this grand and great plan of salvation in which we are included. For it says here that he did this by setting apart custodians or guardians to deliver the revelation. And that's what he tells us here, that these were specifically set apart by the Lord himself to be custodians of the message of God's marvelous plan of redeeming grace. You know, and he uses this word steward. I guess a good way to, a good example of this word steward is is a king who had a kingdom. And in his kingdom, he had many possessions. He couldn't take care of all the possessions and run his kingdom alone. So he would appoint stewards. And then he would put them in charge of the administrating or administrative affairs of all the different sections of his kingdom. And the responsibility of a steward was weighty. And it was serious. Because each steward were responsible to give an accounting to the king. This is the word he's using here of the, notice what he includes here, the holy apostles, the holy prophets. In other words, remember the word holy to be set apart to do something. They were set apart 
as God's vessels to do something. In fact, Paul says it like this in another uh, epistle in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 and 2. He says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found, some translated faithful or trustworthy. That if God puts somebody in charge of something of this magnitude, the salvation, the eternal salvation of people's souls, you better be a trustworthy servant. You better be faithful to the message and not mess it up, not spill the beans before you get it to the table. This is the job of the apostles and prophets. They were given the job, remember, back in verse number, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that it was their job to make sure the foundation was stable so this superstructure of the church can be built. So the Lord's apostles are holy, the Lord's prophets are holy. And remember, just by way of reminder, the apostles were special individuals who were, who, whose qualifications were very specific and limited. An apostle had to be someone who saw the risen Lord. Apostle had to be called and commissioned by the Lord. An apostle had to be given the authority of Christ. An apostle also had, if you notice in verse 7 of chapter 3, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. In other words, that Paul was and the apostles were giving special gifts and abilities. A specific mark that marked out an apostle with supernatural, miraculous powers. No, people don't have that today. People who are claiming to be apostles today, they're, they're far, a far reach from what it talks about in Scripture, about what an apostle is. And not only that, they haven't seen Christ. They haven't been commissioned by Christ. And they don't have the special gifts and abilities that Christ has. See, these abilities included working of miracles and casting out demons and raising the dead. All these were considered to be works of powers that they were given to them to authenticate the apostles' message and, uh, and to the one that they were given the message on behalf of, and that was Christ himself. These were also given to lay the foundation of the building called the church with the message of truth. Just, just by way of getting a sense of this, the workings of powers that the apostles had, look over back to Acts chapter 19 for a minute. In verse 11. Acts 19, in verse 11. Because here, in this book shows the recurring power of God's Spirit and the apostles' supernatural, miraculous power that was given to them by God. For it says in uh, verse number 11 of Acts 19, it says God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Verse 12 of chapter 19, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried by his from his body to the sick, and the disease left them, and the evil spirits went out. 
but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And it goes on in, in that passage. But nonetheless, here we see that uh, in this passage of Scripture, that they had incredible powers, workings of powers. They were, they were not human powers. For verse 11 says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. See, and the application of these miracles were, of course, handkerchiefs or leather working aprons were taken from Paul's body and brought to the sick and laid on them and they were healed. And demons left. See, it's, it's telling us here that that these powers that were given to the apostles reveal the empowering presence of Jesus Christ himself when he walked the earth and that these, these diseases departed and the demons left because the power of God was present. And, and just keep this in mind concerning miracles. That law, the laws of nature are not being broken when a miracle is being performed, but it is God acting above them. That miracles also are a demonstration of God's almighty power and are meant to be signs pointing to something for the purpose of teaching or illustrating a truth. And the truth found here is that God needs no one to carry out miracles, but he does mediate through faithful servants like Paul. And the only reason why is because he was called to be an apostle. He was called by Christ himself. He was commissioned by Christ himself. So when the power of the Spirit of God showed up, satanic strongholds were shattered and unraveled in the presence of God. See, that's what they were given. And they were given that to show the evidence of God's presence in their life. These were special individuals. And that means that God chose these individuals for what? To carefully administrate the message to the people. And to lay down not only the message into the hearing of individuals, but the message would finally be written down. In fact, they did it so well, we have it right in front of us right now. That God superintended and protected the message so it is accurate for us to preach with authority. And I could say, as a preacher, thus says the Lord. It'd be horrible to say, thus says Joe Bobby. See, you don't even want that. But I can say, thus says the Lord. Matter of fact, if I couldn't say that, I might as well not be here. Because there's really not much to say that hasn't been said that leads to really nowhere. So see, in this passage, what God so carefully planned each dispensation from eternity past. The Father 
sent the son at just the right time. He lived the perfect life. He died bearing the sins and punishment of his people. He ascended into heaven and he is seated right now at the Father's right hand. Then the Father sent the promise. And what was the promise? The Holy Spirit, right? At the right time, the Holy Spirit came into the world. Jesus left. 50 days later, Pentecost, the Spirit comes. Now the Spirit indwells individual believers in this body called the church, made up of both Jew and Gentile in this time. And what happens is that the Spirit comes, and what does He do? He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. In fact, if the Spirit of God did not come, you could not be saved. Because He's the one who regenerated your heart. He's the one who caused you to be born again, who made you alive to see the truth and respond to the truth in faith and repentance. You could not do that apart from the Holy Spirit. So in God's plan, at the right moment, at the right time, the Holy Spirit of God comes, and what does he do? He reveals the mystery of Christ to Paul. In verse number 5 of Ephesians 3, which in... Other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that brought the message to Paul. A message that could, be, could not be attained by human ability, and I'm sure glad it wasn't. And then what does the Lord do? The Lord sets apart his apostles and prophets. Right? What does he do with them? They lay the foundation of the church. They unveil the mysteries that were kept veiled by God. In fact, if we go outside of Ephesians, we're going to find out there's a whole bunch of places in Scripture that the Bible talks about the mysteries of God. Let me just give you a few. Romans, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Romans 11.25, Paul explains to the Romans the mystery of, of Israel's present hardness and future deliverance. Right now, is Israel partially blinded? Or do they have present hardness to the gospel? You better believe they do. Right? They do. They're not receiving the gospel nationally in their land. There's not droves of Jews coming to the Lord in revival. There's not, that's not happening. Why? Because it says in Scripture that Paul says this is a mystery that Israel will have in this time, present hardness, but there will be a future deliverance where the gospel will come to them and they will receive it in the land and they will live. All right? And then in Romans 16.25, the mystery that Christ is the one who provides salvation to all children, not just to Jews. 1 Corinthians 2.7, the mystery that the wisdom of God is revealed as the crucified Christ, who is the power of God for salvation. That was hidden before. In 1 Corinthians 15, the mystery of the future when all saints dead or alive, will be changed at the time of the resurrection. That was a mystery that is unveiled to us now. And now is part of our hope, the hope of resurrection. And then uh, first, or Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us. 
Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.7, the mystery of lawlessness, operative in the world right now. And, and believe me, we can see lawlessness everywhere we look. It's increasing. It will greatly increase. It will especially increase when the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit is removed. That was the mystery. And the mystery involves God's program to allow the devil's program of evil to continue until Christ's return and the future judgment of evil. That was something that was hid that is ours now. All these things were hid, but they're ours now. Do you understand that? That you have an insight and an understanding to the plan of God that no one else has except believers. He is saying to us in God's great plan of salvation that you are privileged characters. So how could you be disheartened? How could you be so cast down that you have no hope? If you are thinking that way, you're not understanding what he's saying here. He's lifting us up out of our pits. He's helping us to see. And if you're so, if you're so down that you have to reach up to touch the ground, then you need this. You need to see that these are ours. And they're a great privilege to know them. Like he says in, in 1 Timothy 3.9, the mystery of faith the mystery of godliness, that faith seems to refer to what is believed, the content of faith, and the mystery of godliness refers to Christ, the object of faith. We have both. We have the content and we have the object. This is what you're to believe. This is who you believe in. So our salvation is not in just content. It's in a person. It's in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. That was hidden. It's ours now. It's ours. And what does the Lord do now? What does the Lord do now? The apostles and the prophets, they're gone. Right? These mysteries are unveiled, already written in the Word of God. So what do we do? What does he do now? Well, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, you'll see what he's doing now. He's saying this in Ephesians 4.11, that he continues to set apart groups of men, evangelists and pastors and teachers. And he says in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. What? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's what we're doing now. We're teaching and preaching the Word of God so people become solid believers. So they can't be tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching that's out there. So they know who they are in Christ, so they know where they're going, and when they die, they know where they're going there too. See, this is the kind of people that the Lord's raising up. So for pastors and teachers, what do they do? They continue to work. They continue the work of teaching and preaching what's already written. I'm not looking for new revelation. The Bible is a big book. It takes a long time to study it. Right? So it takes a long time to hear it, to understand it too. So it's both sides that are going on here. And so
And this word of God is, is for all people. It's for all, even the rulers and authorities in heavenly places are going to hear about this great thing that God's done. In fact, in Ephesians 3.10, he says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Now, you, you say, why this display? Well, to show this, that the church alone, the church alone, the gathered believers from the world of darkness into the world of life, call the church. The church alone is the vehicle for the revelation of the mysteries. God's given it to the church, not the world, not mystery cults, not angelic powers, and no human agent. God gave it to the church. And in that church, God gave the revelation. He gave it at the right time. He picked the servants. He gave the Spirit of God. He was in charge of every step of your salvation. Now you're being equipped for the work of service and you're being prepared for the presence of Christ. Every time you hear the word of God, he is preparing you for his presence. And you know what? You're desiring to be in his presence more and more every day. If you're not, then there's a problem already. So just think about it. Just think about what God did in your behalf to bring about your eternal salvation. Just think about where you were and where you are now. If, if you were left where you were before you heard the gospel of Christ, where would you be now? Some of you will be, would be dead. Some, would, of, of some of you would be in a ditch shooting up some kind of drug into your veins or snorting some coke in some holiday party. Some of you just be going along trying to make as much money as you can to have a great retirement. Some of you would just be living by the lust of your flesh and the passion of your heart and going from one thing to another to find some kind of fulfillment in life. That's what would be happening to you. And then, boom, Christ comes into your life and everything changes. And you become a new creature. You actually become new. And you change, and therefore the glory of Christ starts being displayed in your transformed life. And people see it. And you could actually say, I'm not the person I used to be. I'm not perfect. I have a long way to go in God's transformation, but I am not that person anymore. And in fact, I don't want even to go there anymore. I'm done. That part of my life is done. See, that's God's plan. That's what he does. That's how Paul viewed himself. He was surprised when God chose him. He was surprised when God called him. I think Paul was surprised till the day he laid his head on a chopping block and they chopped his head off. I think he was surprised that him, such a vile sinner, can be chosen by God to be a holy vessel to bring the message of eternal salvation to people who hated God. But that's what God did. So see, if you look at the glory, 
If you look at the extraordinary God plan, God initiated, God given salvation that was provided on your behalf, you will rejoice and not lose heart. You will increase in faith, you will increase in hope knowing that faith will turn to sight and hope will turn to reality. And as you marvel more and more at God's great plan of salvation accomplished in your behalf, it will humble you to the place where you say to the Lord, Lord, what would you have me to do on this earth? So see, that's why Paul can write in verse number 13, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on behalf, on your behalf, for, you, uh, for they are your glory. See, once you explain the plan of God, uh, then everything changes in people's thinking. Amen? So I pray that in this, ho- hopefully your holiday went well, you, you had plenty of turkey and whatever you eat on on this holiday and and it was truly a thanksgiving to you not just a thanksgiving for the food provided but a thanksgiving for the salvation provided to you by God amen let's pray Lord today we we do thank you Lord because scripture again so unveils who you are and, and what we are and I just pray today Lord that if someone does not know you as their Lord and Savior. Today may be the day that they bow their knee before you and come in repentance and faith, knowing that they're a sinner and that you save sinners and believe in you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, if people are believers, I pray, Lord, that you would build their faith to the point where they look past suffering to glory and specifically the glory of the wonderful plan of God's salvation in our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for this. Encourage us often with the thought of what you're doing. And Lord, I know, Lord, as that happens, we also realize how short life is. So Lord, I pray that we would be chosen vessels of service uh, while we're here on this earth and that you may use us to be a witness to those around us, that people may see in us the glory of a changed life because of what Christ has done, because of what the Spirit of God is doing in us, because how the Word of God is changing us, uh, changing our mind to know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I pray that people would see that. And so, Lord, we want to cast ourselves upon you. We want to give ourselves over to you, Lord, as uh, servants in your service. Lord, use us according to your will uh, at the proper time to bring the word and the message of Christ to those who have not heard. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.